0: Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. It is very good to be with you. Um, it is it is a joy to be at a church that has the level of commitment to Jesus and to His mission in the world that I know you guys have. Uh, we have been friends with the Wolfs for a very long time, since the early 2000s, and it's fun to be at your, at your home church here. If you would, I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to um, Romans chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at this text, which in many ways tells us exactly why it is that we do what we do in missions. So Romans 10, I'm going to be reading from verses, verses 5 to 17. This is a time of year when churches across our denomination particularly focus on international missions. It's a time when we take the offering that actually constitutes over 60% of our budget. It's the time when we encourage people to pray for missions. It it really is just a time in which we see a connection between Jesus coming to earth, Jesus being sent by the Father to earth, and then Jesus sending us as people out into the world. But the question always comes up when we do this, well, why? Why do we do that? Do we really have to take the gospel to those who have never heard it? And there's a lot of reasons given for why people would just assume not. Uh, it's uncomfortable. It's unhealthy sometimes. It may very well be unsafe. It means leaving family and friends in familiar settings and going to a part of the world that you really don't know. It is expensive expensive. And what we so often hear is, there is so much need here. Well, to answer that question, we have to answer a question before that. Do people actually need to hear the gospel in order to be saved? In other words, is there a real issue that we have to address here? Or is this just something that would be nice? Is this something that would be good to do, but not necessary to do? Now, our society at large is generally pluralist. And what that means is, you'll hear it all the time, all religions are the same. All religions lead to God, you just need to be sincere. And many of those who may be a little more particular than that will still be universalist. That is, they believe that essentially everybody's going to heaven, maybe with a few exceptions, like Hitler, who's there with maybe half a dozen other people who are that bad and so ended up in hell. But otherwise, everybody's okay. Uh, Even in the church, I think there is a fair degree of either universalism or a sort of inclusivism that says, yeah, the gospel's true, and yeah, it's good to believe in Jesus, but if we don't get the good news to somebody, there's a plan B. There there has to be a plan B. There's some other way that someone can come to saving faith or just come to be saved in general. If we're gonna engage in international missions, we need a compelling motivation. And let me add that wherever universalism or inclusivism has taken hold in the church, missions has died for the very simple reason that it's good, but it's not necessary. So if it's not necessary, why go to all that expense and bother with our lives? We need to believe though that the need is real and profoundly serious, and we need to believe that there is no other way. And the book of Romans answers those needs. Now think about the setting for Romans. Uh, This is actually, by the way, a missionary support letter. Um, So for those of you who may be trying to raise support, Romans is your model of what's expected of you as you're writing, and it actually does make sense. Paul has never been to Rome. We have no idea who started the church there. Unnamed Christians have brought the gospel there and planted a church. Paul has been working in the Eastern Mediterranean. He spent all his career basically from Jerusalem up around to what's now Croatia in in the Balkans. He now wants to go to Spain because nobody's been to Spain yet. Well, if you can picture the map in your mind, in the middle of the Mediterranean, there's this big boot called Italy and you gotta go around it or through it if you're gonna get from one end to the other. Well in the middle of that boot is Rome. So the most logical thing to do is to go through Rome on your way from the Eastern Med to Spain. This is an introductory letter then that Paul is writing to a church that does not know him in which he is asking them to help him on his way. And in it, he gives a systematic presentation of the gospel he preaches because he thinks they need to know that if they are to support him with integrity. They need to know what message is it that he's preaching if they are to help him along in in taking that message to a place like Spain. But in the process, he also gives an explanation and defense of his understanding of missions and his place in it. Remember, he's asking them to support him. For Paul, these two things go hand in hand. The nature of the gospel and the imperative of missions literally cannot be separated in the mind of Paul. So what I want us to do is to look at the flow of the book and see how it climaxes right here in chapter 10. Now Paul begins the letter of Romans with a succinct statement of his ministry and message. After the the greetings and the courteous statements at the beginning, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul just launches straight into a discussion of the problem that the gospel is designed to solve. And indeed, if you don't know the problem, you'll always get the solution wrong. He begins with God. He begins by talking about the holiness of God. He goes on to say that creation makes God's eternal nature and divine power clear. And because this God is holy, he hates sin and evil in every form. He is completely appropriate in having wrath toward all that is wrong. The problem is, Paul then goes on to describe us and makes it very clear that we're in the category of that toward which God should rightly be wrathful. He describes us in distressingly sober and honest terms. We are guilty before this holy God. We have willfully turned our backs on God and refused to honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And by the way, this shows that morality and ethics are fundamentally theological and spiritual issues. The root of evil and sin is a refusal to worship God. And you can't separate those two from one another. And the result then is the downward spiral that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. There is a deliberate stupidity. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is obvious to them, Paul says, in nature. This suppression of truth of the real God does not lead to atheism. It leads to idolatry because we substitute other things to worship for the God that we don't want to be around because he rebukes us simply by his nature in our own sinfulness. Idolatry leads to personal immorality. So immorality is again at root a spiritual issue, worshiping the creator, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. That leads to societal decay and all of that eventually results in misery and ruin. That's Paul's analysis of the world and there has never been an age of history in which it hasn't been pretty obvious that at least the conclusion is correct that there is something deeply and desperately wrong with the world. And what he's saying is the root of that is a refusal to acknowledge and worship God and give him the thanks that he is, he is due. And that's true of everyone. Now, Obviously, it was true of the heathen Gentiles, but Paul goes on to say this was equally true of religious Jews. I mean, these were the good people of the day. These were the folks who had the huge advantage of having the word of God in their possession. But all that word did, all the law of God did, was to show them their sin. And the conclusion then is everyone's guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This description that he has given characterizes all of us. And sin has affected every part of human life. And so in chapter 3, there's just, just this amazing indictment of the human race in which he says that sinners are morally corrupted. To quote, no one does good, no one obeys God, and no one can. Sinners are mentally corrupted. No one understands, and no one can. Sinners are spiritually corrupted. No one seeks God, everyone is running away from him instead. And sinners are relationally corrupted. Dishonesty and abuse characterize our relationships. Sinners are totally corrupted in every part of their being. And they can do nothing, we can do nothing to save ourselves. And if Paul had stopped then, we would have been really depressed, but we could say nothing against what he he had accused us all of. But he goes on to say that God, in astonishing mercy, has come up with a solution for our problem. And God's solution is that he gives us the gift of his righteousness. We have none of our own, and so he gives us his. And we receive this righteousness not by earning it through any sort of works that we do, but rather through lively, trusting, delighting faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. So we are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But faith only justifies if the object of the faith is Jesus. It's kind of like this. If if, if you have an electrical cord with a plug at the end of it, You can't just plug it in any old hole you want and any result happen. The the cord and the plug have no value in and of themselves. They're only as valuable as what you plug them into. You have to plug them into a live socket for it to do you any good. And so faith itself has no merit, it has no saving power. Faith is simply the conduit but it must be in the right object and that object is nothing less than our Lord Jesus. Jesus can justify us when we trust in him because he died on the cross in our place to bear the wrath of God that we deserve. And so Paul uses a big, long, fancy word, propitiation, which simply means that not only is our sin covered, but the wrath of God is satisfied by a substitute who died in our place. And this sort of sacrificial death, this sort of propitiation is necessary if God is to be just, punishing sin, but also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so God's character is fully satisfied by this arrangement, that God became a man in the person of Jesus to live the life we should have lived and then die the death we deserve to die, taking on himself the wrath of God against our sin and giving to all who trust in him the gift of his righteousness so that we could stand before a holy God acquitted of our sin and reconciled to him. And this gospel was not just for the Jews, he goes on to say, it's for the nations. It's for all the peoples on earth. And that brings us then to chapter 10 where he talks about the missionary implication of that gospel. So that's the gospel that if you are saved, it's the gospel that you have believed to be saved. It's the gospel around which this church is centered and organized. And this gospel has implications for what you do in the world. So in this section, Paul, first of all, restates how a person is saved. Three different sentences. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This involves then both inward belief and public confession. And it's both in who he is. He is Lord, which means he is God himself in human flesh. And what he did, he rose from the dead, which is the father's affirmation of the son's statement, it is finished. He goes on to say, everyone who believes in him shall not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So it is belief in Jesus that's required. And this is the same plan for the whole human race. Jew and Gentile alike, there's no distinction. And then finally he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord, calling out for help and deliverance. And calling on the name of the Lord, not just a general cry for help, but name indicates identity, specific identity on the Lord God of Israel, the Lord God who became a man in the person of Jesus. That's who you have to call on in order to be saved. And that leads him then to the series of questions in which he spins out his understanding of what it means for him to have been saved by that and what it also means for the Roman churches, the Roman Christians in their church to be saved by him. He says, how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? So you have to call on the Lord to be saved, but you can't call on him if you don't believe in him, and specifically in him, not just generally believe, but believe in him. So faith is necessary to be saved. Without faith, you can't be saved. You can't call on God to save you without believing in him and believing that he will, in fact, act according to the words of the gospel. Then he goes on to say, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And the answer expected clearly is they can't. See, there's a content to the gospel. And in order to be saved, the content has to be known. So no one can believe if they don't know the gospel, if it hasn't been communicated to them in some fashion. And no one can be saved unless they've believed. And then he asked, but how are they to hear without someone preaching? And the answer again is they can't. God uses human communicators to proclaim the content of the gospel. Now, it is true that he can use dreams and angelic visions in the process. We talked about this some in the, uh, in the gymnasium earlier this morning. But here's the deal. Think about someone like Cornelius. All right, Cornelius had an angelic visitation, pretty amazing thing in the book of Acts. But if you look closely, you'll realize that the angel did not share the gospel with Cornelius. If that had been God's plan, they could have saved a few days and a whole lot of walking. Instead, he told Cornelius to send to Joppa to get Peter. He gave another vision to Peter just to let him know it was okay to go with these men. And so, you know, there's a journey there, a journey back, And all that Cornelius knew was Peter had something to tell him that he needed to hear. He was set up for it, he was ready for it, but if Peter had not gone and preached the gospel, Cornelius and his family would not have been saved. And that's what we have experienced on the the field. What we have seen over and over again is that while yes, it is true that there's a lot of dreams and visions that are involved in the salvation of Muslims around the world. I never have met anyone who heard the content of the gospel for the first time in such a dream or a vision. I have known of people who see a man in white who basically says that that they are to to either go to a Christian or a church or point to a Bible, but the content of the gospel has to be communicated through ordinary human means. That's God's plan. We have to take the gospel to people for them to be saved. Human instruments communicate the content so that people know it, and the knowledge of the gospel is necessary for people to believe it, and that sort of informed belief in the gospel is necessary for people to call on the Lord savingly, and calling on the Lord is the only way for anyone in the world to be saved from the wrath of God that we all deserve. That's the plan of God, and that's then the implication of the gospel that nobody's going to be saved unless we take the good news to them. He finally says, how are they to preach unless they are sent? See, this won't happen unless it's intentional and deliberate. And so you ask the question, well, sent by whom? And the answer in Paul's case, which I think is the normative answer for Christians, is sent by the church. Paul was sent out by the church in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas were set apart by the Holy Spirit and sent out by the church and then supported by them in their missionary journeys. They then reported back to Antioch at the end of of their missionary trips. That's the norm, the normative pattern is God has given the Great Commission to the church, and the church has the responsibility for sending people where the gospel is not yet. So, he summarizes by saying faith comes from hearing. And hearing from the word of Christ. That is, unless someone hears the gospel, they can't believe. Unless they believe, they can't be saved. Therefore, no one can be saved unless we go to the nations, and no one will go unless our churches send them. That makes sense then of Paul's ambition. In Romans 15, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. It flows from the very nature of the gospel he preaches. And his planned journey makes sense. I mean, he has been establishing witnessing outposts all over the Eastern Med. He actually goes so far as to say from Jerusalem as far around as Illyricum, which is about modern day Croatian coast, I have fulfilled the gospel. Not that he had preached the gospel to everyone, but he put churches all along the way, And those churches had the job of continuing to evangelize where they were while he went on further and took the gospel where it wasn't yet. And he wants to go now to Spain because there's nobody there and no one has has told them. That also then makes sense of his assessment. How beautiful the feet of those who preach the good news. What could you possibly do better? Well, it's been almost 2000 years since Paul wrote this. So obviously with that much time, we have finished the job, right? Well, Well, sadly, we have not. Right now, of the 7.6 billion people in the world, over 3 billion live among people groups and in places with no access to the good news of Jesus. They haven't heard, they don't know, and therefore they can't be saved. By the way, three billion people is more people than were alive on the entire planet the year I was born, and the number is only growing. Even beyond that three billion, there are many, many more people who, although they technically have access to the gospel, still no one's told them. In fact, right now, only 4% of the world's population is evangelical Christian, 4%. Now, here in the United States, that number is closer to about 30%. Uh, this is actually the most, one of the heaviest concentrations of gospel knowledge and gospel witness in the world, or even in the history of the world. But over and over again, as you look around the globe, you see peoples who have no knowledge that there is a Savior and that calling on Him can reconcile them to God. So, what does that mean then for this church in this place at this time? The first thing it says is that If you yourself have never embraced the Lord Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you need to do that today. Because the indictment of the book of Romans is true of you, that all of us by nature are sinners and all of us by practice are sinners and all of us are guilty before God. And a just God will punish sin. The issue is only will that punishment fall on you or on Jesus, and it only falls on Jesus if you trust in him and you repent of your sin. And so if you have never yourself done that, let me urge you at the end of this message, during the, the time we'll be singing, there'll be people in the back, go talk to someone and put your trust in Jesus. For, for the rest of us, for those in this room who do in fact know the Lord Jesus Christ, grasp the reality of lostness. Grasp how much of the world has no access to this gospel. Uh, just, just to give some examples uh, that are true for people who are in this room who work overseas uh, right now, the country of Japan, which is wide open for missionary service, has, is less than one percent Christian, and that number is shrinking. Central Asia, where I worked uh, for many years of my adult life, is point zero two five percent Christian of the four hundred some languages. That are spoken in Central Asia. we now have the entire Bible in six of them. New Testament in about a dozen more, Gospel portions in about 25 more than that. And that's it. Um, there is not a single people group in Central Asia that is more than one-tenth of one percent Christian. So they all fall in the category that we would count as unreached. And with these people, unless we go, they'll never hear the good news. There is no salvation apart from access to the gospel. All forms of pluralism, universalism, and inclusivism are simply wrong. The second thing I would urge you to do is to grasp the necessity and beauty of missionary service. This really is significant eternally. And yes, it can be messy and uncomfortable. And yes, it can be dangerous. Although, here's the irony. Um, I've traveled all over Central Asia, which includes every country whose name ends in Stein. Um, for decades. Closest I ever came to getting killed was on a windy rural road in Virginia when someone came over a hill and hit me head on. Um, and I ended up in the hospital. The, the fact of the matter is safety is an illusion. In fact, I think you know this, but you know, if you haven't grasped this, none of us are getting out of this alive. You know that, I trust. That we're all gonna die unless Jesus comes back first. The point is what is the purpose of our lives? And the purpose of our lives is to live to the praise and glory of the one who has redeemed us. And the purpose of our lives is to advance his agenda in the world, and this is his agenda in the world. And there is nothing more glorious that you can do than to give your life for things that will matter eternally. Uh, Let me add, there is nothing more glorious than you can do than to raise your children to want to do this. Or if, like me, you're a grandparent to willingly, gladly, happily let your kids take your grandkids to someplace dangerous for the sake of the gospel. And one of the great delights of my life is that my son is right now serving in Central Asia and that could not make me happier. Missionary service is beautiful, it's glorious. Even when it's messy, it's a great thing to do. Now let me add that part of what you need to do also is to be witnessing right here, right now. Remember, that's the strategy. The strategy isn't that a missionary goes and shares the gospel with everyone. Uh, The strategy is that missionaries go where the gospel isn't and plant churches, and those churches are, are then evangelistically active where they are. And so I would encourage you to recognize that, as I understand it, this is one of the more lost places in Texas. This is one of the places with little gospel witness right here in your community. And those people, just like someone halfway around the world, will die and fall under the judgment of God unless they hear the gospel, repent, and believe in it. So by all means, please, eternity is at stake. Actively engage in sharing the gospel where you are, in sharing the gospel in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your recreational uh, activities, wherever God has called you, and those are callings from God. You're called to live where you live, you're called to work where you work, You're called to play ball where you play ball. You're called to the gym you work out in. You're called to do all of those things as an ambassador for Christ. And so engage those people God has placed around you with the gospel. But ultimately what I'm asking is even as you already have sent some of your best to the field, keep doing it. Send more and more. See, the church is the body that discerns and assesses calling and fitness for missionary service. Uh, The International Mission Board just serves as a tool for you to use for doing that. But you know people, ways that we never will until we actually get them. You see people, whether or not they are sharing the gospel where they are, whether or not they are hospitable to strangers, whether or not they are are welcoming to people from other countries. Uh, You see people, whether or not their lives in church and their lives outside of church are consistent with one another. Uh, You see how solid their marriage is or how pure their singleness is. You see all of that. And it is the church then that assesses someone. And we rely very heavily on that. The first thing we do with a missionary candidate is we send them right back to the church with a very detailed assessment that we ask their church to fill out on them. And the overwhelming majority of those who end up being affirmed by their church at the end of that are also appointed by us because that is absolutely key the church should be actively looking for those whom God has equipped to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Not just reacting when somebody happens for some reason to get a sense of calling, say, oh, okay, you, you want a missionary? Okay, yeah, we'll talk to the IMB. But rather, you should be sort of gently nudging each other all the time, hmm, I could see you over there. I could see you doing that. I could see you taking the gospel where it's never been before. And let me add that we can use all kinds of folks. I think sometimes the impression is out there that mission is a young person's game, that you've got to be young and healthy to think about going into it. Everybody else, once you're in a career or have a family, you're sort of off the hook. Uh, nothing could be farther from the truth. While it is true that we certainly do need young people, it is also true that we need middle-aged people and older people. Uh, let me add, as someone who now falls in that last category, older people, that there are some serious advantages to that. So believe it or not, there, there once was hair up here, and, and this thing used to be kind of bright red. Um, and when it did, I stuck out colossally in Central Asia, let me add. When this fell out and this turned white, what I discovered is I could get away with so much more in terms of gospel boldness in the Muslim world. Because they have a view of age that's actually closer to the Bibles than it is to American cultures. American culture has this weird idea that there's some sort of accomplishment to being young. You didn't do anything to be young. You just are. There's an accomplishment to living to be as old as some of us are, if only for the fact that we've managed to survive somehow this long. And hopefully along the way, we've accumulated some experience and some wisdom. Most of the world recognizes that and will listen to older people. And so yes, we need young people, but if you have the health, the ability to do so, we can also use people in their retirement. And some of the most effective evangelists I have seen have been retirees who have gone to the field in those years and leveraged what they know as a a profession to get into a place and share the gospel. We can also certainly use people with theological background in their training, particularly for leadership development, But at the same time, we can use almost any profession to get the gospel where it isn't yet. See, most places that are still unreached are unreached for a reason. They're unreached because their government has said, we're not going to grant you a missionary visa. We're not going to let you come here if your only purpose and your only skill set is sharing the gospel. But we will let you come here if you are a doctor or a nurse or a lab technician We'll let you come here if you are an engineer. We'll let you come here if you're an agriculturalist. We'll let you come here if you're a business person of almost any sort. We'll let you come here if you're a sports coach of almost any sort. You name it, whatever the professions are that you may have, you can leverage that to get into places that traditional missionaries can't and share the gospel with people that Folks who have purely um, sort of an academic theological background will never be able to access. God can use pretty much anyone who has the health and the ability to go there. What we're looking for primarily is, are you yourself a growing disciple of Jesus? And if you are, whatever else is true of you, we can leverage who you are for the sake of the gospel. What that means then is that all it really takes is solid growing discipleship, which should be true of all of us. Uh, there is no such thing as a Christian who is exempt from the biblical expectation that we're growing in our knowledge of Jesus, our knowledge of his word, and our conformity to the image of Christ. So what I would finally say is let's, let's flip the question. Typically we ask, well why should I do this? Why should I go to the mission field? And we assume that the answer is I shouldn't unless something extraordinary happens. And by extraordinary I mean you have a vision in the night in which an angel appears to you and tells you that you're supposed to go to this place. The next Sunday you come to church and someone makes a prophetic utterance over you with the name of the same place. And then you walk outside and the clouds rearrange themselves with your name and the name of the place you're supposed to go to. And then maybe you'll think about it, maybe. God's already said it. It's right here in his word. God has already told us what he desires us as the body of Christ to do. And we are the body of Christ. So reverse the question. Don't ask, why should I? Ask, why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't it be me? There may be an answer to that question but you need to ask it in that way. What we all need to do is to place our lives before God and say, I belong to you by creation and by redemption. You bought me with a price. I exist now to bring honor and glory to your name and to advance your agenda in the world. You've made clear that your agenda in the world is the advance of the gospel to every people group. How? Am I supposed to be involved in that? And don't place any limits on what you're willing to let God do. Pray for or with a willingness to go anywhere and pay any price to get the gospel to those who have never heard. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.